The primary purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. The views, information, or opinions expressed by hosts or guests are their own. Neither the show nor any of its content should be construed as investment advice or as a recommendation to buy or sell any particular security. Security-specific information shared on this podcast should not be relied upon as a basis for your own investment decisions. Be sure to do your own research. The podcast hosts and participants may have a position in the securities mentioned personally through sub-accounts and or through separate funds and may change their holdings at any time. Welcome to This Week in Intelligent Investing, where we examine timely and timeless investing topics to help you become a better investor. Enjoy authentic, unscripted discussion featuring Phil Ordway, Elliot Turner, and other thought-leading investors, brought to you by MOI Global. And now, here's your host, John Michalczewicz. Welcome everyone to This Week in Intelligent Investing. So good to have you with us again for this episode. Great to welcome my co-hosts, Elliot Turner and Phil Ordway. We have a great discussion ahead, so let's get right into it. Elliot, over to you. Great. Thank you, John. And uh, good to have Phil back this week. Um, you know, I think every once in a while, and it's been happening more frequently lately, we got to put the this week in intelligent, the this week part into uh, this week in intelligent investing. And I wanted to talk about, you know, when markets trade on headlines and emotion rather than value. And, you know, the situation in Ukraine is really upsetting on so many levels, and it's been really challenging to watch what's happening. Um, and, you know, to see our world for the thrown into a sort of uh, disarray, that's just something that our generation, fortunately, had not had to deal with in a big way globally until now. And it's, you know, because we're talking about markets here, I'll kind of focus more on that right now, um, even though our thoughts are with everyone who's, who's struggling over in Ukraine, um, you know, the situation in terms of how uh, markets grasp and manage headlines, we're in a, a environment for the second time in basically two years, right? It was exactly two years ago at this time when COVID took over everything. Uh, when I think it was just this weekend, uh, two years ago, that I basically did my last things out in public. And, you know, and incidentally enough, it wasn't too long after that started where we got this podcast rolling. I think that was really helpful for synthesizing our thoughts and getting in touch with the world and trying to sift past this idea that, you know, there was a really severe event and there were very specific and clear immediate economic consequences, but there were very unclear longer term consequences. And markets were moving based on very emotional, very quick relational actions. Um, and since it started with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, but the acceleration, the, the kind of expansion of sanctions started to manifest in very bizarre market moves where these linkages that you have between supply chains, between energy, between um, certain workforces at companies. There are some companies who predominantly employed Russian staff or Ukrainian staff. You start seeing uh, very visceral reactions. And then you start having reactions based on cross-ownership of things. So if you happen to own a stock whose largest holder also owns one of these Hertz stocks, and suddenly 
you know, they have to sell something to make up for maybe they have Yandex, which is completely locked right now. Um, you really start having these questions like, is my stock moving because I don't know something about their per potential linkages to the situations that are economically significant? Or is it moving because there's some sort of like, you know, cross ownership problem? Like, how do I think about this? How do I synthesize this? So I think, you know, it's a very important time for all of us to focus on first principles. We're fundamentally minded investors. So it's really important to reassess, re-underwrite some of your critical assumptions, to think about what the business looks like down the line, to understand the cost structure of the business if there are linkages to potential supply chain disruptions, to rising commodity costs, um, and to you know kind of rebuild your mosaic. And then beyond that, you know, once you get past looking at your own companies and kind of understanding and uh, synthesizing the risks you're facing and what um, actions you do or don't need to take, start thinking about the opportunity set that's out there. Um, there are things that are moving very far, very fast. And, you know, one of the bad ideas I've seen is, uh, I think it was uh, Fidelity's data on the day after the, the, the um, halt in all Russian markets, um, the most traded security in all of Fidelity, and I, I'm sorry if I'm wrong, someone correct me if you know the exact source, the single most traded security by a factor of 10x that day on the buy side, uh, one of the major brokerage platforms was RSX. So there is this still pernicious vein of uh, buy the dip, uh, you know, irrespective of what's actually happening, like that lotto ticket trade that worked for a lot of people during COVID and Hertz, even though they weren't even able, uh, Hertz itself wasn't able to issue equity to capitalize on that situation. There is There is some weird stuff going on. But in reality, you know, outside of those kinds of bizarre situations, there are some interesting opportunities that are starting to emerge. So you want to have a process. You want to have some thoughts for how you approach these things, how you synthesize um, what is and is not like long-term fundamental risk to a business. And obviously, we're doing this under immense uncertainty. Like no one knows exactly when the situation is going to end in Ukraine. No one knows exactly um, if there's going to be a uh, you know, a, a thaw in the situation or an escalation. So it's really uncertain. It's really scary in a lot of ways, both from a humanitarian and uh, investment perspective. But, you know, there are certain things that we can know and isolate on. There are certain ways that we could keep ourselves like sane and focused. Um, and, you know, sometimes slowing down is one of the most critical steps. So not being one of those emotional people to react viscerally to the headlines and get past your emotions. So I wanted to introduce this topic. Um, I thought it would be helpful to talk it through with everyone here. I, I you know, I'm, I'm sure John and Phil, you both have some important thoughts to add on, you know, how to stay sane amidst heavy emotions. So let's, let's open it up. Yeah, thanks. It's good to be back. And, and by the way, thanks to both of you guys for the good conversation last week with Mario. When I was uh, out of town, I had a good friend's wedding that was kind of a long trip. So my wife and I decided to tack on a couple of days for vacation with pretty horrible timing. So I was sorry to miss you guys. And certainly it goes without saying that I think all of this discussion uh, should be predicated on, you know, uh, with an air of, of sadness and and seriousness that is just over the it's beyond the bounds of this conversation, right? The, the situation in Europe and, and what's happening there and how scary it is. So I, I agree with you, Elliot. This is just a, a hopefully helpful, but in the grand scheme of things, trivial way to try to 
compartmentalize things and and figure out what's going on in a much narrower part of the world. So yeah, I I think we've talked about this in, in different contexts, certainly not in the context of an uh, an outbreak of war and and atrocities that are being committed across you know a big section of the of Europe right now, and it, it's really sad to see. So I I don't I don't know what else to say other than you know I think this this fits into the category of that bad things happen a lot and the world often breaks down the, you know, it, I, I guess the, the thought that I keep coming back to is that for investors that lived through, you know, the eighties and nineties, right up into nine 11, and then the financial crisis and then COVID, you know, it's really interesting that there were these long periods of calm that were then completely punctured by these things that just kind of came out of the blue. And, you know, you, you stop to think and wonder about the, the, the calm that led up to that and just kind of lulling people to sleep. And, you know, and in this case, we had plenty of warning signs about what may have developed here. But what's so odd to me is that it was just sort of, it was, it coincided with this period of sanguine attitudes and risk on behaviors and people paying ever higher prices for things. And so, yeah, there's always a confluence of factors that influence those types of behaviors. But now that the, the, tide might be going out in some regards and there's all this chaos in the world and you see all these crazy things that are just so hard to explain. You know, what do you do? I, I, I wish I could give you a good answer. I, all I can say is like you said, I, I think, you know, you have to have committed yourself to a process. You have to know what you know and know what you don't know and, and try to stick with that as, as much as you possibly can. What about you, John? Yeah, I mean, I think um, so many of the linkages aren't obvious yet um, with, you know, the new news about Russia invading Ukraine and the sanctions that I think, you know, surprised a lot of people. I think the knee-jerk reaction was by the dip and then it was basically, oh, this time's really different. And um and so the impact, um, you kind of, there's multiple layers of impact. I mean, the first layer is just Russia has become uninvestable, and you've seen Russian stocks delisted uh, in London and elsewhere. Um, so basically, there is no buying the dip. There's not even selling. I think it's pretty much impossible to do anything in those stocks right now. Uh, the Moscow Stock Exchange is closed. And so, you know, people got caught there. Um, I think a lot of folks were just kind of, you know, ignoring the geopolitical risks. And it's really come back to bite. And uh, I think, you know, the question is, should we be thinking along similar lines with regard to China? I think that's a really big question here. And I don't have an answer, but certainly um, that's not um, priced in at the moment. Um, when you look at what happened to Russian stocks, where uh, Spare Bank, a, a stock that within the last six months was trading at basically $20 a share, um, went down to, I think, about $2 on the news of the invasion. And then rebounded a bit before dropping in London and actually getting a print at one penny uh, before it stopped trading. I think uh, 
when it stopped trading, it, it traded at like five cents a share, which oh. is just mind-boggling. Uh, but the the you know the knock-on effects, I think, are the bigger story here. Uh, you see food prices starting to skyrocket, energy prices skyrocketing. Um, basically, there could be some huge effects in the commodity sphere. Um, all commodities, really, but maybe longer term, really, the strategic commodities. We'll just have to see. And and what does that do to you know um, the the what the Fed needs to do in the U.S. I mean, you really don't have a lot of options with inflation already running pretty high. Now this shock and maybe the economy slowing. Like, what do you actually do? And as an investor, you know that that. How do you position yourself? So, you know, a lot of questions. I don't think uh, we have the answers yet. It's funny, John. I actually pulled up the Spurbank uh, chart this morning when I was preparing for for my little segment, which, you know, I, I, somebody put it up uh, on Twitter and it was the chart from one of Nassim Taleb's books about the Thanksgiving turkey, right, where there's kind of this steady horizontal or slightly up and to the right chart about the turkey's growing confidence over time, right? And it goes up, up, up until it falls straight off a cliff on Thanksgiving Day. And the the Spurbank chart looks almost exactly like that. You're right. I mean, it traded at $15 uh, or 15 euros, I guess, in London on February 20 or February 16th. And you're right. It traded at about four and a half uh, cents before it was suspended uh, a couple of days ago. So it just literally went almost straight down. And uh, it's crazy. Uh, the, the other comment I'd make is, is one that I was thinking about earlier, too, is I think probably the most interesting or, or potentially significant unknown at this point, just like as with COVID, when we, we launched this unprecedented response, fiscal and monetary response to the COVID crisis, and now we're seeing you know, the inevitable effects of that, right? Nobody could predict exactly what would happen from that, but no doubt that inflation that we're seeing now is is largely a result of years and years of policy decisions topped off by this massive catastrophe of COVID. And uh, not to say that any of those responses were right or wrong, it's just how things work, right? And, and this could have the same sort of thing, right? I mean, to your point, John, we were already in, you know, a bit of a situation in the commodities world, and we were already in a huge mess in terms of the supply chain around the world. And uh, you look at some of the things that are now happening just, just at the very micro level, right? I mean, if if major air cargo carriers can't fly over Russia to get to Asia, you know, it's going to further disrupt the cargo landscape in the world, right? I mean, you're already seeing that in, in passenger traffic. You're already seeing it in all other parts of the world and, and financially, right? I mean, I'm actually stunned that the world financial markets haven't had more sand thrown in the gears and more issues over the last few days. Uh, you know, the, these sorts of financial sanctions are completely unprecedented in terms of just an all out blockade against a, a fairly significant economy in the world. So uh, I'm with you on that, that uh, I, I don't know how to prepare for it any better than I would any other sort of disaster, but it seems reasonable to expect that we have not seen the last of the second order effects. Yeah, it's interesting you said sand in the gears, but I think some of that to an extent is being masked by the indices, right? You know, like energy is a big part of, uh, well, a much smaller part of the S&P now than it had been in the past, but you start getting 
energy and materials companies go parabolic, that's going to be a counterbalance to everything else getting crushed. Um, and, you know, you both mentioned some really interesting knock-on effects um, in, in the scary and, and negative way. Um, there are some knock-on effects that I had been uh, somewhat I, I don't know if impressed is the right word, but um, that, that are more on the positive side, like Europe has been acting with a sense of cohesion that I think Jean Monnet would be like, wow, <laughs> maybe we have a chance of a United States of Europe finally, um, where, you know, like you're basically a decade since the peak of the Euro crisis and kind of never really expected to see parts of Europe act in the way they had, um, you know, just a few years ago in the U.S., uh, some people were questioning whether NATO was necessary and, you know, perhaps European partners should contribute more uh, to collective defense. And suddenly you're like, NATO is extremely important. And um, you have Germany talking about spending 2% of GDP on, on defense, which I, I don't know seems surprising and like Switzerland acting to freeze uh, funds, you know, breaking uh, legacy of neutrality that, you know, had had some taints to it. Um, it it's kind of wild. It's kind of crazy. Unprecedented is the only word, right? These are unprecedented times. And it's been, uh, you know, just um, sobering watching it uh, happen from our, our seat here in the States. Yeah, I'll say this too, Ellie, to get back to your initial kind of question and this whole thing is, is how do you ground yourself? And it, it's trivial, right, in the grand scheme of everything we're talking about. But if you can match your assets to your liabilities, right, whatever that means to you as a as an individual or as an institutional investor or whatever your capital structure looks like personally, you know, I if the world ends, the world ends, right? We, we've seen that. We didn't see that for a long, long time. And then we sort of felt that way financially in 2008 and 2009, and then you know felt that way in a little different sense in the COVID crisis, and now again in a different sense here in this crisis. Uh, but if the world doesn't end, so if we just take the the doomsday scenario off the table, you know th this isn't any other. It, it's not different than any other situation, right? I mean, in my investment framework, I'm trying to figure out where a business will be in three, five, and ten years, and just trying to anchor myself to that. And if I don't know, I don't know. And that applies to the vast majority of businesses that are out there. And certainly in this case, it would apply to huge chunks of geography now, right? I mean, I, I've certainly never considered Russia investable along with a whole bunch of other countries for a whole bunch of different reasons. But if there are companies that I can understand and geographies that I can understand, and I have a strong view about where they're gonna be in three or five years, you know, I think that that can be kind of the calming situation here that can kind of be the best way to to keep your eye on the horizon and avoid getting distracted by things. It's certainly the time. I mean, here's some unequivocal advice I can give. Turn off the CNBC. Be very careful curating your Twitter feed and all that kind of stuff, because and this is something I'm going to talk about in my segment. It's very easy to get caught up in these waves of panic and hysteria uh, and, and again, it's not that the panic and hysteria aren't well-founded in a lot of cases. I mean, this is a very serious, horrible situation, but that may not help you think more clearly. And I think thinking clearly is what we're all trying to do. Yeah, that's a really good point. I've been, as you all know, a huge fan of Twitter and professed how important it's been for investing in general. 
And while it's been invaluable for news flow on what's happening with respect to Ukraine, I've found it to be incredibly destructive in terms of forming coherent thoughts about what's happening in markets and what does and doesn't matter right now. Um, It's actually been about as bad as I've ever seen it on that front, um, where there's just a lot of emotion and a lot of like expression sans thought. Um, And that's a very dangerous place. uh, and, and, And it's almost poisonous to your brain. So it's been important to uh, like hyper curate the feed and make sure it stays as focused I think, as possible I think that's, use it at all. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a point worth hammering on because that was the initial thing that you, you brought up here was, you know, what do we do? How do we account for this? How do we handle this? And those types of platforms with either, well, on the one extreme, you have dedicated disinformation, misinformation streams that are, you know, hopefully outside the purview of most people, but those obviously going it goes without saying that those are poisonous. But in this case, I think the way you phrase it exactly right. I mean, this has always been my biggest issue with all forms of social media, Twitter just sort of being the paragon in, in a lot of ways, which is that it, there is so much expression without information. And I just don't care. Not only do I not care, I don't want to hear some person's thoughts on every topic. I love it for information gathering, just like you said, raw data, raw information. I think I've said this before. I first came to understand the power of Twitter when on that fateful night, what, almost a decade, just over a decade ago now, when uh, the United States captured and killed Osama bin Laden. And while we were waiting for official confirmation of what was actually going on, some random dude in the middle of the night put on Twitter like, hey, I just heard a helicopter go over my house and there's always been a rumor that Osama Laden was in this neighborhood. So some random guy like staying up late working in his home office, like broke the news that we'd probably gotten Osama bin Laden. I thought, wow, this is an incredible new world that we live in with this distrib- distributed information network. But like you said, Elliot, I mean, it, it, so I, I'm using Twitter right now to get, you know, insights into what's happening in Ukraine that I could never otherwise get, right? Like no cable news network, no network news, nobody could could capture the same kind of insights and, and real-time pictures and data and, and human stories like you can with a with a camera in your pocket or phone and, and the internet. But, you know, when this gets combined with some random anonymous whoever person on Twitter that is just spouting off based on their emotions and they're looking at their portfolio, which is probably getting trashed. Was, you know, by the way, this comes on top of a pretty painful period uh, in the markets for a lot of people, that doesn't help their emotions, right? So I, I agree. I just doesn't help doesn't help you think at all. It probably hurts you nine times out of ten to listen to that kind of stuff. So that's why, in, in my own personal feed, like if if you're the type that's just constantly, or even more than once, reacting with ex- expressions without information, I'm just unfollowing or muting or blocking. So well, you're not unfollowing me, Phil. I've been uh, doing some of that in in recent. No, I. I've not certainly look. I maybe I have missed something, but I certainly haven't seen you doing anything that is expression without information. Everybody can have an opinion, and I, I I support people that are voicing solidarity or just voicing their opinion. But it, it's more the kind of shoot from the hip kind of stuff, or the unfounded. We should be doing this. Go look at that. This is the way to behave. This is the you know path to all investment righteousness. Um, you know, frankly, look, I praised by name, criticized by category, but this is, it's gotten 
less bad recently, but the kind of stuff we saw at a Chamath last year, right? I mean, that, that is just the kind of stuff that is absolutely poisonous that, that will lead people astray. And uh, that's what I would seek to eliminate at all costs. And John, I found your feed to be fantastic through this all. So keep it up. Thanks. Thanks, Elliot. Um, maybe just getting back quickly to kind of the investment side of this. Um, I think it is the kind of point in time when everyone should look at everything in their portfolio and ask the question how the um, the situation in Ukraine and the response of the world could affect the businesses in the portfolio. Uh, because I don't think this is a short-term um, phenomenon right now. I think there's a real chance of a new Iron Curtain coming down and basically the world cutting Russia off uh, almost completely um, in a lot of ways, although some ways are harder than others, like the energy side where Europe is heavily dependent on Russia. Uh, but I think just examining you know, whether the companies in your portfolio are affected by this in a big way, and if so, how, um, I think goes a long way. And, and actually, I think what you'll find if you go um, through the portfolio is that a lot of things will not be affected. Some will, um, but in, in many areas, Russia is not very significant on a global scale. I mean, you think about it, it's a huge country in terms of um, land area, but it's I think less well well less than two percent of global population, and um, you know in terms of GDP, I don't have the statistics, but I don't think it's super meaningful. Uh, it's really meaningful in more in some commodity related areas, especially energy, um, and of course, if you're talking transportation, where you know you can't use uh, Russian airspace or certain. Um, ports or such, uh, that's going to have an impact. But um, yeah, we, we got to think a little bit more longer term here because I don't think we're just getting back to normal when there is um, some kind of peace in Ukraine. Yeah, yeah right, that, that raises one of the really tricky questions, right? You know, there's some software stocks that are way down on this. And then you could look and you're like, okay, well, this software stock has absolutely nothing to do with Russia. So you can't be swayed by the stock having gone down to change your thesis on the company. But then you might look at a different software stock and be like, oh, God, their entire staff is in Russia. What do they do now? Right. Um, and so there are these weird linkages that you might not expect to happen, though, um, you know, you can't be led to believe that there might be a problem just because the uh, the stock itself is acting emotionally. And that's part of where I was like trying to start and lead with this topic. That's where it gets especially tricky, but where it takes like that sober mind and sober reference in terms of, you know, critically asking like, okay, so something's happening here, but what is it? Like, what what is the root cause here? And what do I really need to be thinking about? Yeah, absolutely. I was... I was curious, John. So I just looked it up, and you're right. I mean, it's it's about three percent of world GDP, but a little less than two percent of population. So, believe it or not, it's actually punching over its weight a little bit in that regard. And I think it's the eleventh biggest. I didn't Google this real quickly. I think it's the eleventh biggest economy in the world. So you forget how many small countries out there add up to make up the rest of the world. So, 
Uh, I'm with you. I, it was funny. I was meeting yesterday with a company um, where I have a very large position. And uh, as recently as 2018, they had a major operation in Europe and a major, major operation as a part of that in Ukraine. And uh, I don't know what I would have done if I had still, if they, so they actually sold that, uh, the, the entire international business. And I don't know. <laughs> what I would do today if they still own those assets, because I completely and totally agree that this is not a situation that's going to resolve itself this week, this month, probably this year. I, if you look at how this is built up, it, it's been building for a decade plus. It, it may not reach some any sort of resolution for a similar amount of time. So it's pretty sobering. For sure. Well, Phil, why don't we... Uh go to your topic uh, for the week. I know it's related to what we were just discussing. Yeah, exactly. There's no real need for a segue because it's it's so tied at the hip to what Elliot was talking about and what we were just discussing. So what, what brought this to mind is while I was on the trip last week that I mentioned, uh, my wife showed me her phone uh, the morning of the invasion, and it was this text thread that had basically gone viral amongst her friends to the extent you can go viral amongst you know a few dozen people on a text thread where where one of her friends had said uh that a, a close friend of hers who is a veteran and a, a uh, student of world history so to speak and very well informed in government affairs was encouraging all of his friends and family to run to the ATM and fill up their gas tanks and stock up the grocery store and that sort of thing, which is a very understandable reaction. It's, it's exactly what we we're just talking about, right? I mean, it's, it's partly rational, it's partly fear-driven. Uh, and it, it quickly devolved though into basically a few of these people asking for what they thought were the safe thing to do in terms of an investment portfolio. What's the safe asset right now? And I had a couple of reactions just off to the side. I didn't share this with the whole group, obviously, which was one that, you know, if you need an extra 500 bucks in suburban Chicago because of this, you know, we have much bigger problems. So, I, you know, it's always good to have extra cash. I don't know about the physical currency doing much for you in that regard or, or you know, what the groceries are going to do after the next week or two. But I, I, the, the mindset of preparation, whatever, is totally fine. I, I totally understand that. But it's an interesting question, right, about what do you do in times of pure chaos like this in terms of a safe asset? And, you know, as, as much of a downer as it is, I mean, my basic response was there is no such thing as a safe asset. The safest possible asset you can have, of course, is, is you know, cash currency in a, in a denomination that is backed by a, a reasonable country and nation state behind it. Um, and in my opinion, the US dollar is at the top of that list and or treasury bills, short-term treasury obligations. Uh, and, but that is not risk-free, right? Because if you wait for this situation to resolve itself, if you wait for the all clear, you could be here for years. And if you're here for years, particularly in this environment, a very large percentage of the value in your currency is going to be degraded by inflation. And so there's there's no safety in that. Uh, there may not be any safety in a range of other asset classes for for similar macroeconomic reasons. I mean, I have no idea what's going to happen to interest rates in the overall macro environment. I wish I did, but there is risk everywhere you look. And so, very similar to what we were just talking about, you have to take in odds and probabilities. You can't take in this is safe. There, 
Bitcoin, gold, real estate, bonds, you know, these are the things that are usually held out as being safe, so to speak, when there's, you know, a so-called flight to safety. But in my opinion, that's often the, uh, the absolute worst thing you could be doing, right? You're almost always going to get that timing wrong, or at least most people are going to get that timing wrong. And, and by the way, if you're buying, particularly out of fear, buying bonds or buying real estate or hoarding cash or gold, you may be doing it at a price that is completely irresponsible and could be destroying value in your own portfolio that way. So it just doesn't make a lot of sense to view things as safe or risky, right? Everything is a trade-off. Everything is a continuum. You know, the, the supposed linear relationship between return and risk is obviously a logical fallacy. And, and I just don't think most people have thought about it that way. But once you do, it kind of makes obvious sense. Uh, well, a couple other things I wanted to point out is I was just uh, doing a, a bit of research this morning. We talked about Spurbank earlier, and, I, and that's why I had looked it up. But, you know, it's before it was suspended, it, it traded down to about uh, 20% of the prior year's earnings per share. So instead of trading at 20 times earnings or two times earnings, it was trading at 0.2 times earnings. Gazprom, uh, same sort of thing. It was trading about uh, 50% of last year's earnings, one year's earnings. So not, not five times earnings, but 0.5 times earnings. And you're seeing now US sponsored ETFs where you know this is not buying something directly in Europe. This is where you thought you were diversified. This is where you thought you were safe. And the ETF is just now going to completely liquidate. It will no longer exist. So what you thought was a nice, safe, diversified asset is truly no longer there. Uh, I was also talking to a good friend uh, the other day and a, and a very sharp guy in his own right. And, and he was worried because he had some short credit exposure that sort of had some knock-on exposures or, or even direct exposures to some of these emerging markets countries that are going to be really hurt by Russia's isolation. Um, and so his thought was that if this all gets resolved quickly, you know, this thing could all rally right in his face and he didn't want to take it off, blah, blah. So he's looking for a hedge. So what was this hedge going to be? the ADRs of Spurbank. And I kind of said, well, look, I, I don't know what's going to happen. Obviously, if this does get resolved, you know, those shares of Spurbank could go up 10x in one day or more. Um, but there's also the very real risk that the sponsor just decides that this is no longer tradable or that the security itself is delisted or even more likely that the Russian stock market just doesn't reopen, right? I mean, it's been closed all week. I mean, there, there are plenty of cases where markets have stayed closed for a long, long period of time. This is from Jason Zweig's column actually just today. Uh, he cited some research that found uh, there were more than 25 times last century when markets were major markets were closed for months or years. I mean, these were markets like Japan and Korea and Argentina. I mean, these were not banana republics. These were, you know, very significant countries. Uh, where they just simply close the market for months and years. And if that happens, then what do you do? Um, so I, I don't know what else, um, what other advice to give or what other pronouncements I could possibly make. I certainly don't have any answers. It just strikes me that we are probably at the precipice of a major regime change, both geopolitically and in the economic realm. This is a lot of what you talked about last week with, with Mario Sabelli is that, you know, you can't assume that we're going back to the way things were, even though that was a good long run and everything kind of 
defied gravity uh, for a long period of time. That just may not be the case going forward. And, and again, it was the thing that jumped out to me the most over and over again was that despite some unbelievable things happening in the world like COVID and despite some enormous risks, most investors in recent years sought return regardless of risk. And now I think you're going to see many investors that are going to seek safety regardless of return. And in my opinion, those are both mistakes. So going back to Elliot's initial premise, I think the best thing we could possibly do as investors is to find the middle ground between those two, right? I certainly don't want to go out looking for risks that don't come with commensurate return. And I certainly don't want to go out looking for safety regardless of potential return. It all has to be balanced together. So uh, with that, I'll turn it over to you guys. Well, you make a lot of good points, Phil. And one of the points I'd want to start off with, is I think part of what you're saying, right? Everything needs to be approached with nuance. There's no return without risk. There's no right. uh, no way to avoid that reality of markets, right? Safe might be very unsafe at a certain spot. And part of the role of being a portfolio manager, and this is one of my favorite parts of the conversation with Mario too, is like, you have to think about balancing some of these things. You know, part of what you have to do is think about the environment and think about what you own and what you want to stick with and what kind of might counterbalance some of those risks. So it's not just about putting together a collection of things that are seeking purely the objective of return or purely the objective of safety. It's like, how do you balance them and how do they fit together to be a cohesive unit that's greater than the sum of any one individually can do? Um, one problem is like, two observations on that that I think are problematic is first, I thought in the post-GFC world, um, correlations had gotten far closer to one. And it was a lot harder to have things that worked when others didn't. And then since COVID, I think there's been this massive bifurcation in markets. And so, you know, there isn't one market and it's been really hard to kind of manage balances between the two. But still, that's the objective, right? Portfolio management is a skill. It's something that everyone needs to do. It's an area where, quite frankly, I've learned a lot of lessons lately and I've have, have a lot of new thoughts that I'm eager to deploy over the next decade, considering this is the culmination of my first decade doing this. Um, but yeah, so I, I'd add some specific points to what you said, Phil. First is, um, you know, and, and I think I did say this already, but safe means so many different things to different people. Like, okay, clearly treasuries are the perceived safety of the world, right? Even as the Fed is saying, we're going to hike rates a lot of times this year. Who knows what a lot means? Uh, they didn't use the word a lot, but right, you get the picture. Um, no one's been doing anything other than piling into treasuries in recent days, right? So you've seen that across the entire curve. And that shows you know, what perceived safety looks like. That's where people go. Um, but then you have other things like, you know, there are some prominent value investors out there who were saying, oh God, and I think you made an awesome point with this about Gazprom. Um, they were saying stuff like, oh, growth is terrible, growth's terrible, it's way too expensive, it's going to go way down. You know, if you want safe, you buy Russia. It's cheap, it's cheap, it's cheap. But like, you know, any move to safety means you are assuming a different kind of risk. And there's no way around that. Um, you know, and I think that's part of the reason why it's it's foolish to say you're only a growth or only a value investor, right? Like safety uh, depends on context, depends on so many different things, depends on time frame, whatever it may be. Um, you know, Bitcoin, Bitcoin's really funny because you've had like 
uh, all of its early ascension, people talking about how it's the ultimate inflation hedge because they're going to have a finite supply. And here you are in a moment where inflation spikes high and it proves to be just a long duration kind of inflation sensitive asset. Oops, that's kind of crazy, but you know, not all that surprising. But then you also have this, oh, it's safe from financial system lockout. And you even have some of the Bitcoin exchanges saying they won't shut off Russia despite international sanctions and restrictions. And then you hear stuff like, oh, oligarchs might be moving their money into Bitcoin. I don't know. Is that safe or is that less safe because of that? Like, these are tough questions. And then you have just weird, like, um, you know, because there's these bans on trading certain things, which, you know, who knew these were going to happen not long ago. Um, There is a security RUSL, which is like the ultra long of the Russell of of the RSX, which is the ETF that invests in in Russian ass, Russian securities, Russian equities, and this thing was trading uh, just the other day at two point five times its NAV, and yet you know I I, I was like oh a safe thing to do would be shorting this thing, but meanwhile you know you can't actually get locates from any broker in the U.S., so you can't do it. Um, so safe might not be accessible in different ways. Uh, you know, even if you think it might add safety from a portfolio management perspective to your portfolio. Um, but those are some random thoughts. Uh, you know, I think the overarching principle is that, yeah, there's no such thing as safe. It, it is what it is. And you have to be thoughtful at all times. Yeah. That, that's just, I think that's the perfect way of putting it. I hopefully said it slightly differently is that there is no such thing as a safe asset. Every asset has risks. And again, in the case of a non-defaulting United States Treasury, there is still the risk of inflation, right? In the case of a quote-unquote perfectly hedged portfolio, you know, there's still the basis risk that you're inheriting, right? There's still the, the chaos risk that you're inheriting. Like I said, my friend that was looking at, at buying some spur bank before it was suspended, I mean, there was always the risk that A, it would either get suspended or that the ADR sponsor would just leave you hanging, right? I mean, I don't, I was literally trying to find examples of cases where the the agent or the the sponsor just kind of walked away, uh, depending on whether it was sponsored or unsponsored ADR. And you can't find any, but just because it hasn't happened before doesn't mean it's not a risk, right? And so that's why this whole, and again, I get why people are interested in safe assets right now, but I think it's kind of a self-defeating proposition. I'm glad you mentioned basis risk there too, because I got an interesting personal story to tell on that. I mean, I, I everyone knows, I'm sure you regular listeners have heard about my stories recently. You know, last February, uh, last year at this time was pretty good. And I had this constant debate with myself and some of my peers about like, you know, could I sell short the S&P against my book and protect a lot of the gains I'd had to that point without having to make like tough decisions and tax consequential decisions on specific assets to sell, right? You can listen to my story on overstaying my welcome for more detail on that. Um, But had I actually done that, um, oh my God, would I have like compounded the, uh, the, the, the bad results that followed, right? Basis risk is really real. Like it's very hard to kind of isolate any one risk. And no matter what you're doing to get rid of one risk, you're creating another risk. And so, you know, if you're going to try something like that, you really do need to ask yourself, um, what potential new risk am I opening the door to? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think people, uh, it depends, but it, it, 
it's curious to me, and we talked about this a little bit with Spencer Jacob a couple of weeks ago about his book, but you know, when new people get drawn into investing, particularly with the casino mindset that places like Robinhood have fostered so much, it can be really easy to think, oh, I'll just do this and then I'll do some more of this and I'll layer on some of that and I'll just put together this amazing thing. And it's not that simple, right? I mean, the more decisions you layer on, by definition, the more risk you layer on, the more things that have to go right at one time, the more things that can go wrong at the same time and, and bring you down. So yeah, that, that's a lesson that I'm glad that I learned very early on. Some of the people I worked with uh, early in my career were very, very cognizant of basis, cognizant of basis risk and the complications inherent from risk management models and complicated portfolios and, and that sort of stuff. And it's a lesson that's always stuck with me. Yeah, and managers often will talk about net exposure of the portfolio. You know, one popular uh, strategy with hedge fund managers is the 130-30, where you're long 130% and short 30%. And the idea is you have 100% net exposure, but you can make additional alpha from having your longs outperform your shorts. The problem is there are times when it really is the gross exposure that matters and you're 160% gross exposed in that case. And if um, you know your longs and the shorts go against you at the same time, you could suffer some material uh, impairment. So that's on a portfolio level. Um, in terms of quote-unquote safe assets uh, amidst all the chaos in the world, uh, I think the only other thing I'd add maybe to what you guys have already said, which is terrific, um, just kind of thinking a little bit um, you know, longer term or, or, or taking a look at market history and where we are. Um, you know, I've seen charts that show that basically uh, the commodities complex, commodity companies as a percentage of the S&P uh, near a very long term or all time i don't i don't remember the the exact stat but very low compared to uh where they've been historically and this happens now at a time when commodity prices are very strongly turning up and there are some real drivers you know the the russia ukraine uh, war uh, the sanctions and so forth that probably mean we're going to see strong commodity prices for a long time to come. If, and just take energy where um, all of Europe is now scrambling to become independent of Russia. You know, renewables aren't going to cut it. Um, if you look at, and renewables are great, there should be more investment in those, but it's just not going to happen on a time frame that's needed here. And what does that mean? That means that now some of the things that were kind of shunned because of ESG, like let's say offshore drilling, um, that's completely on the table because it's been economic already with uh, oil prices much lower than they are now and with um, energy independence now becoming a strategic issue, you simply cannot afford um, not to get all the energy you can. I mean, it pains me to see that, you know, coal is in vogue uh, again, uh, because that is really uh, not, not good for the environment, uh, that we need to fire up uh, more coal power plants. Uh, and I think Germany might be doing that. 
or or getting ready to do that. Um, but I think you know to the extent that investors were shunning energy because of ESG considerations, now there's something that trumps that, and that's that's the need for energy security while investing in renewables longer term. So I think you know. Don't go outside of your circle of competence, first of all. You know, if you're not, if you know nothing about energy or commodities, this is not the time to think you can pick winners. Uh, maybe have some allocation to some sort of an ETF, a low cost uh, way to, to do this. Um, but even if, you know, that's the macro trade and you, are you know skilled in software investing skill you know stick to software investing i think it's really important people still stay within their circle of competence because um knowledge uh brings safety in a lot of ways um but just from a big picture standpoint um the way commodities have traded over a long period of time and with what's happening now I think for those who can analyze those kinds of companies, it might be a good uh, time to do that. I just want to jump into John with a point that I, you brought up that, or an illustration of one of the points you brought up, which I think will be taught in the in the textbook, so to speak, for decades and decades to come. Which is that you know coming into to COVID, you had you know a relatively uh, oversupplied and sanguine oil market and. You know, commodity prices have been under pressure for a long time, and then COVID came along, and we we all remember the famous incident in April of 2020 when the May contract went below zero, and I think it had a negative $37 a barrel, negative. And then you wake up 22 months later, and we're at 110 or whatever, right? It, so if anyone needed a stark illustration that crazy, unexpected, unpredictable things can happen, that ride from you know, up, down, negative, and then straight up again in, in a world market like oil is just stunning and fascinating. Are these the craziest two years in markets? Well, you know, that's a fascinating question. And I don't know. I mean, it, I, I'm not enough of a I'm not well versed enough in history to say, but you'd have to think that some of the periods around I was reading this this morning. the The stock market in 1914 in the U.S. closed in July and didn't reopen until the end of the year. So that's pretty crazy, right? But yeah, I mean, look in terms of just whiplash, this might this might be right up there, right? This two year period, it's pretty it's pretty crazy. Yeah, I mean, a once in a hundred year pandemic, right? So not long after 1914, you, you get war and a pandemic then. So it's hard to call this crazier per se, thinking about history, but my God, I mean, at least in recent times in the post-World War II era, it seems about the, as crazy as it gets. Yeah, I was going to say, in terms of the sheer number of seemingly unrelated, even if they are actually unrelated, crazy-ass things happening all at once, right? From what we just said to the social media, GameStop, AMC stuff, to the SPAC boom, to, uh, yeah, having all of that stuff piled right next to each other is is pretty unbelievable. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I think we can only hope that things get less interesting and less crazy <laughs> soon. Um, otherwise, we could be in for 
Well, it's it's a big risk though, right? I mean, it's a good point, John, because like even if you're super intelligent and super hardworking and super rational, you can still get exhausted, right? I mean, I know there are times when I just have to, you know, quote unquote, turn the screen off for for a few hours or or disconnect over a weekend or something. Like this little vacation I took last week was kind of unfortunate because I, I couldn't do that as much as I would have given everything that was happening out. But you almost have to force yourself to do it a little bit every once in a while because it's exhausting, right? I mean, it is it is truly wearying to try to keep up with everything that that's going on in the world when there's this much change and volatility and and just chaos swirling all the time. It can really tire you out. And and we've talked about this a lot. When you're when you're tired, when you're emotional, you make bad decisions. Yeah, isn't that the truth? You know, sometimes when you least want to peel away is when you actually need to do it most. Yeah, I think that's right. And and to me, the the really crazy thing is that, you know, we have advanced in so many ways as uh, humanity that we could have a splendid world right now, you know, with basically all our physical needs taken care of, um, you know, things could be the best ever. Um, in a lot of ways they are, but there are also some very scary discontinuities um, possible that I think is just a reflection of human nature, you know, not really changing as fast as our technological progress. And that's been kind of... <laughs> The, the part of the uh, the warning that's that I think all of us have to take seriously is that you know we we need to figure this out otherwise at some point um, there's gonna be you know an event that's gonna go way beyond um, you know something that just has a, a market impact but uh, hopefully we uh, we we settle down and uh, things get more stable from here on out that's all. Amen to that. All right. Well, thank you so much, guys, for the conversation. Uh, and thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, these are extraordinary times, uh, and we appreciate you uh, tuning in. Talk to you again real soon. Take care. Thank you for listening to This Week in Intelligent Investing, brought to you exclusively by MOI Global, the research-driven membership organization. Learn more at moiglobal.com.